Welcome back to the Vine Church podcast. Today we are continuing our study, The God Who Loves, exploring the doctrine of the Trinity. If you haven't already, you can find us on YouTube at the Vine Church Odium and Church Crookham, and would love to have you join us over there. Hello everyone, welcome back to The God Who Loves, for part four now. Uh, it's great to have you with us, whether or not you're in person or if you're on YouTube. As I always say, there's a handout in the description that you can download and just give you a helpful uh, way of following along with us this evening. If you do have any questions, be sure to, to either put a comment on, on the YouTube live chat or to put your hand up and we can go through some of them at the end and hopefully I won't forget like I did last week. But let's, uh, let's crack on with part four. So this one, this is God. And today we're going to be kind of looking at the more practical nature of the Trinity. So, so far we've kind of, we've kind of treated God like a specimen so far. We've kind of prodded him. We've looked at what he is, what he isn't. You know, we've, we've seen where he is in the Bible. But this week I want us to really get the practical nature, the application of the Trinity. You know, answering the question, what does that mean for me? And it does mean significant things for us. So let's get into uh, that. Let's, let's get into that question of, uh, so what? What does that mean for me? So the, the reality is when we, when we step back and we look at the Christian faith, we realize that the Trinity underlies everything that we believe in. In fact, the Christian faith wouldn't be the Christian faith without the Trinity. And next week, we're going to be looking at the gospel, how the gospel is Trinitarian. But this week, we're going to look at some, uh, some bigger things, or some bigger than the gospel, I don't know, some different things to that. Uh, but before we can talk about kind of knowing God or the gospel or anything like that, we have to just step back and ask about God in himself. What is God like in himself? And we have two, um, oh, so, so let's ask the question, before anything else existed, what was God like? What was he like before there was anything else he could interact with? And there are two phrases that we use when we're talking about this, which are really important. And I apologize for the technicality, but they're helpful nonetheless. The first is ad intra. So when we're talking about God ad intra, we're asking about what is God like in himself? So if you, if you hear me using that phrase, it's about God in himself without anything else, even if nothing existed, ad intra. So you can think of uh, like an introvert, it's, it's, you know, or introspective, it means kind of inwards, inwardly. The other word is uh, ad extra. What is God like in the way he relates to other things, in the way that he relates to his creation? So again, you can think of the word extrovert. It's someone who's outward. So uh, God ad intra is God in himself. God ad extra is God as he relates to his creation. And these are really important terms to understand as we grapple with the Trinity. And lots of uh, mistakes, small mistakes, big mistakes, have been made because people haven't got these distinctions quite right. And uh, it's important to note that uh, these are related. These aren't like separate. These aren't divorced. They're not talking about two different things. But they are distinct still. So, I mean, a, a good example here is that, uh, let's take something like wrath. God is not eternally wrathful, all right? Wrath, God's wrath, is part of God, though. We can talk about the wrath of God, but it's an ad extra result of an ad intra thing. So God in himself is just. He's passionate about justice. He hates sin. And so when there is sin and he interacts with it, he has wrath against it. So that's a really good way of kind of seeing the relationship between the two. The ad intra feeds into the ad extra. 
So let's talk about some of God's attributes. What are some attributes of God? Just, just name some. Kind, yeah? Merciful, fantastic. Loving. Do you want to click over to the next, next slide there, Josh? Yeah, so we could also go with you know, all-powerful, omnipotent, uh, self-existent. This is a really important one we're going to come back to. Eternal, he has always been, he will always be. Holy, set apart, he's loving, as, as was said. He's all-knowing, he's triune, he's just, he's just. Now, self-existent, this is a really important one. This means that even if nothing else existed, God would. It means that God was never created. It means that there is... When you talk about everything has a cause except for God, he exists in himself, and everything about God exists in God. There was never a time where God became something more than what he was. So these are, these are really important attributes to have uh, when, we're, when we're talking about God. Now, these all relate directly to the Trinity, and we're going to look at a few of these. We're going to bring some of these out tonight, but one I think is really important that we cannot underemphasize, the Bible certainly doesn't emphasize, underemphasize, is that God is love. God uh, in himself is love, and yet that's a problem. You're thinking, what does, he, what does he mean it's a problem? What is the problem with that statement that God is love? The question is, is God dependent on other things to be himself? There's a, there's a problem when we use phrases like this, and let's, let's uh, unpack what the problem is. Imagine God were not a trinity. Imagine God was one being in one person, okay? There's one being in one person, and what we have there is what's called an inconsistent triad. Could we go for the triangle? So this is what's called an inconsistent triad. Not everything here can be held at once. Now, I'm going to show you why. Right, loving certainly by a meaningful definition of it, means to pour out love on something other than yourself. To, to love is to have a, a, an affinity for something, to, lo to love something. Well, we all know what I mean by love. Unchangeability means you don't change. As I, as I say, it's quite simple. Self-existence, we talked about this. God is self-existent. Now, it's an inconsistent triad if God is not a trinity. Because if we only have loving and unchanging. So as I, I don't know if I clarified enough, an inconsistent triad is three points where only two of them can exist at the same time. So one that people often use, which is a, a bad one, I should clarify, is people say uh, evil exists, God is all-powerful, God is all-knowing. If God was all-powerful, uh, sorry, all-good and all-powerful, if he was all-powerful and all-good, he wouldn't allow evil to exist. Uh, evil exists and God is all-powerful, which means that God is not kind, or uh, God is kind and evil exists, which means he's not all-powerful. Uh, it's not a good example because it misses lots of things in Christian theology, but it's a, it's a, as I say, it's a classic example of an inconsistent triad. But this one is inconsistent. If we only have a loving God and an unchanging God, then it means that he's not self-existent. It means that God needs something else to be who he is. If you think of it like this, God is loving. To be loving means that something else needs to exist. But if you're the only thing that existed, bear in mind we're talking about before anything else existed, then God isn't truly himself. He needs something else. And so he, he and the universe must always exist. So that's the first one. And you end up with a, a kind of a blur in the lines between God and his creation. There's the, the kind of, they need each other. 
God needs creation. It often gets called pantheism, if you've ever heard that word. God is in creation. He is creation. Everything is God. The, the, the line is blurred. The second one you have is, okay, well, maybe God is self-existent. Maybe there was a time where only he existed and he's loving, but he's not unchanging, which means he had to become loving. He changed. Before anything existed, he wasn't loving. Things became existing, uh, existed, ex things came into existence, and then he learned to love. So he's no longer unchanging. That's the other area that you can get. The third one, okay, maybe God has always existed. The universe hasn't. Maybe he's unchanging. He doesn't add attributes. He doesn't add personality. He is as he is and will be forever. But this God is not loving. He has nothing to love. He, he has no one to love. He cannot learn to love. He's unchanging. And so it would make no difference to him if we were interested in him or uninterested in him. It would make no difference for us if we uh, die or are saved. It makes no difference to him if we pray to him or if we ignore him. This God is completely uninterested. He is an emotionless monad out there somewhere in the universe. So uh, if we just move on quickly, in Islam, one of the words for God is al-wudud, which means the all-loving. This is one of the 99 names for Allah. Um, they have 99 names which describe various things about him. The question is this, who did Allah love before creation existed? There was nothing to love. And so the only option we could say is, well, perhaps he loved himself. But then that means that when creation comes along, that is unnatural to share that love with creation because it's a, it's a self-love. It's wrapped up in himself. It's, he has to do something different if he then loves his creation. Do you see the problem there? And so he cannot be himself loving unless he has his creation. And so he's therefore not self-existent. That's a real problem. He would need creation to be himself. And yet they say he's eternal, the universe has had a time where it didn't exist. There was never a time he didn't exist. So that's, that's a real inconsistency. He needs something else in order to be himself, in order to be loving. And so what are some other solutions that people have come up with? Well, there's a philosopher, as many of us will probably be familiar with his name, Aristotle. So he was a philosopher from 384 to 322 BC. And uh, Aristotle and a group called the Gnostics came up with this view, well, okay, so there had to be a time, uh, if, if God's loving, then he must always have been loving, and yet, uh, and, and if, if he needs creation to love, then uh, there's a problem there, he recognizes the problem, and so he came up with this view that essentially creation just kind of oozes out of God. You have God, he doesn't consciously create, it just exists because he exists. They're kind of two sides of the same coin, God and creation. Creation has always existed, God has always existed. It's what he called the solid state universe. And this is actually what most people believed until the Big Bang Theory came along. And what's really ironic is, most people in the scientific community didn't like the Big Bang Theory because it sounded too Christian. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There was once a time when there was nothing. But here we go. Uh, creation just oozes out. This was Aristotle's solution to the problem. God is not a creator necessarily, and so they can maintain that God is loving. So they have the self-existent, oh, no, sorry, they have the unchanging, they have the loving, but they have no self-existence. 
But we Christians are a little bit cheeky because we get to have our cake and eat it. We get to have all three sides. And for us, it's not an inconsistent triad. It's a consistent triad. We can and do believe all three things. We believe that God is unchanging. Malachi 3 verse 6, I the Lord do not change. We believe he is self-existent. Acts 17, Paul says, God needs nothing. He created everything, the heavens and the earth. And yet we believe what 1 John 4:16 says, that God is love. Well, how can we do that? How can we have a God who existed without a universe to love and yet was loving and will not change? We can have this and know this because our God is Trinity. God has always been pouring out and receiving love within this community of love. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. The Spirit wraps their love around each other. It's a community of love. God has always been loving. And so when creation comes along, God doesn't have to do something unnatural when he decides to pour out his love on people. God doesn't do something unnatural when he decides that he will save them. God has eternally been pouring out his love. I I find this really profound that before anything else existed, before I existed, yet the Trinity loved me. The Trinity had me in mind. The Trinity was pouring out their love and reflecting on that one day they would bring us home. That is really profound. God is not just some emotionless monad in the sky who is disinterested. He is the eternal fellowship of love. This is a really powerful quote from Gerhardus Voss. The best proof that he will never cease to love us lies in that he never began. There wasn't a time where God didn't love you because he is Trinity. Now, it's things like this which I just really want us to see. This, this doctrine of the Trinity isn't just some academic um, doctrine that's out there and some of us will understand it. No, this is really at the core of the Christian message. We have a God who loves. That's why this study is called The God Who Loves. You can't have that without the Trinity. It's really, really profound. Another area, very, very similar, so I'm going to be saying most of the same things for this. Very profound that we call God our Father. God is our Father. Let's think about this. Let's compare this to, to human fathers for a second. Human fathers learn their role, right? So before I had Evangeline, I was still me. And uh, I wasn't a father. When I had her, I added on a role, and I'm now learning to walk in that role. I was still me. Everything that makes me me was still me before I had Evangeline. It's not essential to my nature. We talked about a few weeks ago with kind of essence and nature. It's not who I am as a person is not fixed with being a father. I became a father, and therefore I fail at being a father because it's not who I am in of myself. Do you, do you see what I'm saying there? I had to learn that role. It's unnatural to me. I'm therefore imperfect, as I say. And it's not a when, it's not an if rather, it's a guarantee that I will make mistakes as a father. And yet, when we pray our Father in heaven, we are praying to the perfect Father. We're praying to the God who has always been Father. He has always been Father, loving Son, and Son, loving Father. That's not something that he had to learn to do. That's not something that is unnatural to him, that he's now learning to walk in. That is who God is, the loving Father. 
because has, God has always been and will always be the good father. James 1.17 says, uh, every good and perfect gift comes down to us from the father of lights in whom there is no change or shadow. Human fathers, therefore, have a standard of fatherhood. I cannot, you know, we have this idea of the perfect father. Well, we can actually have that because there is the perfect father. I, I can say, I want to be like how a father should be because there is such a thing as the perfect father. I think a really profound way this is shown is in Ephesians 3, if you want to turn with me there. Ephesians 3 verse 16. This is often missed and to be fair, English translations don't help um, with the fact that we miss this. Um, Ephesians 3, verses 14 to 15. So Paul says this, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. From, uh, in the English translation it says, From whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. The word in the Greek there is actually, instead of family, is patria, which means fathers. So it should say, or rather it could say, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every father in heaven and on earth takes their name. In other words, I am called to be like the eternal Father. I'm named, I'm called a father in light of what God is like, not the other way around. It's not like God looks at humans and draws an analogy and says, that's kind of like what I'm like. No, we were made like this to reflect God. So I think that's a real practical encouragement in our prayer lives, for instance, that we're praying to the perfect father. We're praying to the one he has always been father, and I am learning to be his child. That's, again, I find that so profound, that you, if you are a Christian, can pray to the one who has eternally been father. Human fathers make mistakes. Many people have been burnt and hurt by their fathers, but this is the perfect father who can't fail us. As I say, a real practical encouragement. If we move on to a, a, another point, I think this is often uh, taken for granted. We have a God who speaks. Right? We can only be talking about God right now because he speaks, because he has revealed himself to us. This is evidence that God can communicate. But here's the thing, how could God communicate if he were not a communicating God? This is what we talked about with the kind of ad intra, ad extra. Unless God was communicating ad intra, how could he then learn to communicate ad extra? He'd again have to be changeable. He would, he would not be unchanging. And I probably should have clarified bigger, there are much bigger problems if we have a God who can change. Lots of people say, oh, God's changed his mind on that about various social issues. And you think, well, how do you know that God's not going to change his mind about being loving? How do you know that God isn't going to decide that he actually wants to hurt humanity? No, the Bible is actually very comforting when it tells us that God can't change. And so, going back to the point at hand, because God can communicate ad intra, he can communicate ad extra. He can communicate to us. Um, and I'm, I'm just going to read, if we open up our Bibles to 1 Corinthians 2. I was reading this through with um, Anna and some friends the other day after lunch, and we, we all found this really profound and I'm not sure why I hadn't quite noticed it in this way before. But 1 Corinthians 2, verses 10 to 12. Paul says this, These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. Now we know who the Spirit is. The Spirit is God. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. 
For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. See the, the Trinitarian nature of God communing, communicating to us there. The spirit, if you like, kind of goes and mines the gold mine of God the Father. And then when he comes to us, he brings that knowledge to us. That is God communicating to us through the Trinity. As I say, what we have here is a God who can communicate in himself. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are always talking. And because of that, he can now reveal himself to us. I've got another quote. By this point, I think Herman Barvink would be a familiar name, perhaps. I, I quote him most parts, but as I say, he is my favorite theologian, and he says this. If the divine being were not productive and could not communicate himself inwardly, ad intra, then neither could there be any revelation of God ad extra, that is, any communication of God in and to his creatures. It's really profound. We have a God who can talk. And that's because we have a God who is Trinity. We don't get any of these benefits if God is a singular unit. I, I hope this isn't sounding too kind of phil philosophical or anything. I hope we're seeing the kind of the, the profound practical nature of this. These are philo philosophical problems that theologians have had for millennia before the New Testament came. And now we can understand how all these things work. We do have a, one more point to look at. And this one, I think, is a lot more philosophical. So... If you don't quite follow, that's absolutely fine. No worries. But it is important. So if you can follow along, this is really helpful because this is about how do we know stuff? And it's a problem that's called the problem of the one and the many. Now, philosophers in ancient Greece had a very hard time with this problem because, as I say, they didn't have the Trinity. They couldn't make sense of it. So what is the problem of the one and the many? This is a dog. Let's call him Tom, right? He is a dog. This also is a dog. Why are they both called dogs? They look nothing alike. Why do you say this one's a dog and this one isn't like a, a no, type of horse or a whole, a whole new name, a, a, a dorse? How is it that we can have two things which are in complete diversity, they look so different, and yet, ultimately, there's a unity and that both of them are dogs. How is it that I can say I am the same kind of thing as Greg? I'm the same kind of thing as Naomi, despite the fact I'm Joshua and you are not. I'm Joshua, but we're both people. Greg's a person, I'm a person, Naomi's a person, I'm a person, but I'm not Greg and I'm not Naomi and Naomi's not me and Naomi isn't Greg either. How can we have this unity in diversity. This might sound like a, an odd problem. Maybe you've never thought of it before. But the reality is there is a unity, as I say, and a diversity. And we might have heard phrases today like, we are all one. You know, we are all one. Oh, that's grainy. We're all one with the universe. We are all connected. And we probably kind of push these off as kind of silly, uh, you know, Eastern phrases. But there is a sense of truth in them, actually. We are all made of the same stuff of the universe. If you were to look at the universe through a microscope, it all does look very similar. We're the same stuff. Break us down and we all look the same. 
And so we all recognize a significant unity in the world. We all recognize that there is something that binds us all together, something that connects us, something that means we're all the same stuff. You know, and uh, particularly Eastern religions really bank on this. So Buddhism is uh, founded on the notion that we are ultimately all one, that there is no diversity. You know, uh, I am you, you are, you are me, we're all one, and when I die, I return to the oneness. You know, they use the image of like a, um, the sea as it comes up to the shore, the wave comes up, and then it crashes down, and then it returns back to the water. There's a sense of oneness. Now, as I say, there is a sense in which that's true. And yet, diversity is absolutely essential to understanding stuff. Here's a really basic example. One plus one equals two. Everyone agree with that? <laughs> well, Josh doesn't. In order for one to be added to one, means that one and one, these ones are different, to make something else. You, you kind of see what I'm saying there? there? There's a diversity amongst them. And yet, if it was only diversity, and there is no kind of fixed pattern, there is no unifying principle, then sometimes you could add one and one together and get 80. Sometimes you'll get 104 because there is no unifying principle. But if there's only unity, there's only a unifying principle, then there is no room for diversity, and so one plus one equals one. Because you can't go more than the one. The reality is, in order for this to make any sense, there needs to be an ultimate unity in the world. There needs to be an ultimate unifying principle. There also needs to be an ultimate diversity. Something needs to be different from something else. Um, and as I say, this is a problem. How can you have unity and diversity? How can you have the one and the many? How can you have a dog and another dog, and they look completely dif different, but they're still dogs? And as I say, this stumped philosophers in the ancient world. This gave uh, Plato, for instance, and Aristotle a really hard time. Plato kind of came up with this view that we're all like a shadow coming from a fire. As I say, it's similar to the wave one. Here's the thing. We have a god who is ultimate unity in diversity. Because there is one God, we have ultimate unity in the universe. But because we have a God who is three, we have a, a standard for ultimate diversity in the universe. At the very foundation of everything that exists is the triune God, which means at the absolute foundation of everything that exists, there is unity in diversity. We have a meaningful basis for knowledge, we can make sense of the one and the many because of the Trinity. Now, as I say, that is certainly more kind of philosophical and, and abstract than the other points. You know, God is love, that's fantastic. God is Father, God speaks. These are all necessary. And this is more a problem of kind of knowledge and how do we know things. But I wanted to include this in here anyway because the reality is this affects us every single day. Whenever you find something out, whenever you know something, whenever you speak to someone, you are taking for granted the fact that we have unity and diversity. So I hope you have managed to uh, take that in. I hope I haven't been made it more confusing than it already is. But um, that's me done in terms of tonight. But I hope we see the real practical, profound nature of the Trinity there. It isn't something to be prodded and poked. Uh, poked. I mean, when we pray to God, we're praying to the God who loves, the God who is Father, the God who can speak to us, who has spoken to us. It's really profound stuff. So uh, I'm going to finish there. If we have any questions, then uh, we can take some of those. 
Um, but if not, we'll, we'll call it a day. Anyone? Cool. And I'm assuming no one on YouTube? Cool. Well, thanks very much for joining me, everybody. I hope that was uh, good for you. And I hope that was helpful and you got something from that. So uh, that's me done for tonight. And I'll see you next week. So thanks very much for joining us. Bye.